0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We've got a great guest ahead and a great program that we're really excited for you to hear, and we hope that you're having a very blessed day.
0: You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or find us on your favorite podcast app. Just ask for the Bridge Builder show. Each week we try to bring you some great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith and public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media and see if we answer your question in a future episode. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the common good. In today's show we have a great episode we are talking about the importance of marriage and society the effect the pandemic has had on marriage and family formation the role of marriage in producing helpful and strong outcomes for kids in schools in our mailbag segment we cover a question about learning more about the judges who are on your ballot and how do you find out information about them so you can inform your election vote most appropriately and then stick around for our bricklayer segment where you can find out what you can do in the final days before the election and where the resources are that you can go to find out who's on your ballot and how to form your conscience for faithful citizenship. We're blessed today to be joined on the line by Dr. Brad Wilcox. He is associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Virginia, where he directs the National Marriage Project. He's also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he directs the Home Economics Project. Inaugurated in 2013, the research project explores the links between family structure and economic growth in 20 countries around the world. Among his other accolades he's a fellow at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University and has been a research fellow at Yale, a research associate at Princeton, and a Chivitas fellow at the Brookings Institution. Additionally, he's authored When Marriage Disappears: The Retreat from Marriage in Middle America and co-authored Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives. He's got a master's degree and a doctorate in sociology from Princeton University. And he's uh, graciously agreed to spend some time with us to talk about uh, the importance of marriage. Dr. Wilcox, welcome to the Bridge Builder program.
2: Um, it's good to be here today, Jason.
0: Why does marriage matter? Why have you devoted your academic career to studying marriage and its many aspects and facets in our, in our lives and its importance?
2: You know, for most of us, marriage provides an important measure of meaning, direction, and stability in our lives. It also gives us a sense of sort of more fundamentally solidarity with with someone else. And that solidarity can be emotional, social, uh, economic, and even uh, particularly as you kind of age health-wise, you know, having a spouse, you know, be an advocate for you in the hospital or in the doctor's office. I think if you either are older or have older parents, it can make a huge difference for people.
0: Why does the state get involved in marriage? I mean, why do we pursue, you know, get marriage licenses? Isn't it, isn't it just a romantic contract between two people, or does it have some inherent connection to the common good?
2: Well, you know, unlike just kind of, you know, an acquaintanceship or a work relationship or a friendship, I think that the thing about marriage is... The sort of permanence, the stability that we sort of see with marriage means that marriage is much more likely to basically frame our adult relationships over the life course and especially to provide a context where kids are getting the, you know, basically day in, day out investments from their parents. So marriage is about the sort of fundamental family solidarity between adults and especially between adults and their children. So that's why the state is more concerned about marriage than it would be about your, your tennis partner or your soccer buddy or your office buddy. Those relationships might be important, but they don't just compare to the relationships between spouses and, and between parents and children, which are all kind of basically more likely to be stable and strong if folks are married
0: Sociologists like yourself and other academics talk about the ways in which marriage fosters social capital and, and nurtures children and has broader effects. The church talks about it as the family is the domestic church, the school of virtues. Say a little bit more about the way in which the family, and at least in the way in which the church calls it, is that font of solidarity, that way in which children are fostered and being productive and virtuous and what the sociologists might call building that social capital. Say a little bit more about how that works and what the research has
2: shown in that way. First, it's important to acknowledge that there are some ways in which I think married people can kind of be less engaged in their communities. Mm -hmm. There's some research that suggests, you know, married folks spend less time with friends and with family, you know, once they marry. And to some extent, that's understandable because there's kind of a, you know, a new relationship that is of kind of paramount concern. But I would also say here, just off the bat, it's important for married people not to sort of lose sight of the single folks, the unmarried folks in their their larger social circle and in their church community, for instance. And that can happen, as, as, as you know um, and as I know. But it's important to sort of underline the bigger point here, and that is that married families are much more likely to... Um, Be civically engaged and to give their kids the kind of social capital they need to thrive in schools, in the larger social world in terms of avoiding things like, you know, delinquency and uh, incarceration and also to be doing well when it comes to sort of work and the economic, you know, world more generally. So what I'm saying here is that kids who are raised in stable married families are much more likely to be thriving educationally emotionally and economically compared to kids who grow up in some kind of unstable or single parent uh, household.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Brad Wilcox from the University of Virginia, where he directs the National Marriage Project. Dr. Wilcox, oftentimes people, they get the points that you make. They say, we need strong, healthy, stable marriages, but sometimes they forget the role that economics plays and the excess of good jobs and other supports. Uh, Say a little bit more about the role in which economics, job prospects, those sorts of things play in the decision to marry, the ability to stay married, to promote stable marriages. It seems like there's a divide between what might be called social conservatives and those concerned about economics and family formation.
2: For the last uh, really 40 years, a lot of Republicans have combined a a fairly strong commitment to limited government, low taxes. Low regulations and a cultural commitment to uh, strong families and to marriage, but over the course of the last 40 years, we've we've obviously seen you know real erosion in working class marriages. Fewer working class Americans are marrying today, and if you're working class, Americans who do marry are staying married today. And I don't think this is just a cultural problem. I think that there are economic factors also at play here. And one of those factors would be the impact of trade agreements with places like China. Another factor would be the way in which automation is playing out. And so I think what we're seeing today is that there's a recognition on the part of many social conservatives That we need to think more deeply about economic issues and think about public policies, and also just sort of, you know, sort of ideas for companies that would make, you know, corporate America and make our economy more family-friendly, particularly for working-class Americans. I think that we are seeing people like Orrin Cass, for instance, who is setting up a new uh, think tank called American Compass, who are encouraging us, you know, people who are concerned about the health of American families, particularly working-class ones. To pursue and consider new strategies when it comes to economics to shore up the foundations of working class family life in America.
0: And we've had Orrin Cass on this program as well, and he's offered some really interesting insights in that regard. Dr. Wilcox, what might be some policy prescriptions that you would offer or recommend to help nurture a stable family life? We use some of your research to help create a reform in our welfare system to create a honeymoon period for people who do get married so they don't lose their benefits so we're grateful for the work you do what's what's next uh, on the horizon what are you really recommending to policymakers who consult you on these questions
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm grateful for the work you've done on the marriage penalty. in Minnesota, of course, as you know, one of the problems around the marriage penalty is that a lot of these policies can only be reformed in Washington D.C., you know, um, not in uh, not in, in in Minneapolis. And so, what I think we need to do is continue to work on on making marriage penalties disappear in programs like Medicaid, which are directed from D.C. So that would be one thing I would say. But in terms of other things that we can do to strengthen families across the U.S., I think pursuing a child allowance, which would give families a monthly, basically, stipend to spend on you know their kids. And I would, uh, sort of in the interest of kind of keeping the expenses of this down, I would target this child allowance to Americans who have a child five and under to help them with the cost of... You know, caring for their young children, for their infant. And also, the key point I would make here, too, is that I, I'm not in favor of, you know, pushing a universal child care agenda forward. And this is something that the Vice President Biden has been talking about and Senator Elizabeth Warren have been talking about as sort of the primary way to address the child care crisis in America. And the problem, of course, with that approach is it basically only allows for like one model of caring for kids to be supported by the government. Of course, the model that they're thinking of is one where both parents are, are working oftentimes full-time and not giving their small children kind of as much of that in-person parental attention. So a chat allowance is nice because it allows families to decide for themselves how best to organize the care of their young children and often will allow uh, families to have one parent at home or one parent working part-time so that he or, or she can devote more you know, one-on-one time to, uh, to their small children. So that would be a, a second thing that I think we should be thinking about. And the third thing that I would mention here is looking at some kind of basically work subsidy, where we're giving American workers who earn less than the median a subsidy for their market wages that would help both make work more appealing and attractive, maybe draw some men who are out of the labor force right now into it, and would also shore up the financial foundations of working-class families. So those are three ideas I think that could be helpful in um, strengthening family life in the U.S., particularly among working-class families.
0: There's been some conversation here in Minnesota about the child allowance policy and say more about that is it is it a replacement for other uh, human services programs or welfare programs does it only apply to married couples or does it uh, does anyone with a child are they able to access these
2: uh, allowance funds The child allowance is designed by most people to basically target virtually all families uh, there are some proposals that would limit it you know to Americans whose income falls kind of in the middle or lower end of the you know of the wage mm-hmm. spectrum, so you know I think that's something we can talk we could we could certainly talk about um, although I'd want to make sure that if any child allowance is sort of is pushed forward that we don't penalize marriage and so we'd have different thresholds for single um parents versus married parents to minimize that marriage penalty um but you know the idea here is is you know I think particularly in many of our of our metro areas, parents often find the cost of childcare, the cost of schooling, the cost of rent or a mortgage to be pretty high. And a child allowance would sort of um, help them manage those costs, but also would signal to that republic, um, that the country, um, you know, understands and appreciates that the work that parents do is of really of infinite value. And this is kind of just in some ways a token of of our sort of support for and appreciation for parents. And it's, of course, particularly, I think, important to, to sort of think about this issue because the nation's fertility rate has fallen to its lowest levels ever in recorded history in 2019. And given all the, the fallout of, of the pandemic this year and next year, we expect, uh, my colleagues and I expect that, fertility will fall to new record lows in 2020 and even more so in 2021. So I think we do need to think more about both public policies and a cultural message that would make parenthood more attractive and accessible to ordinary Americans.
0: So the child allowance is in some ways a neonatalist policy, you could
2: call it. Yes. Yes.
0: You you mentioned Dr. Wilcox. Um, the low fertility rates. And we saw something similar in 2008 when the market uh, tanked in 2008 as well. Higher ed, for example, is looking at the demographic sinkhole that could open up in, I think, approximately five or six years and looking at that with trepidation. But you're remarking now that we're seeing record low fertility level rates. Obviously, economics plays a role. What are we seeing when during times of economic crisis about childbearing and marriage and family formation?
2: What we've seen is that, as you pointed out, there was a market decline in fertility, you know, in the wake of the last recession. So when there's economic uncertainty, I think, you know, many Americans become more cautious about moving forward with having kids. And I think we'll see that play out again in the wake of this pandemic-related recession. And I think beyond that, though, I think that um, Gen Z is just cautious about everything. And that's also going to translate into fewer relationships, fewer marriages, and fewer babies. You know, I think we also are seeing that so much of our lives are mediated by electronics, you know, smartphones and uh, gaming devices, you know, I could go on. Um, And the problem with that is that I think it makes it harder for people to kind of engage with other people in the real world and, you know, kind of on an in-person basis. And again, that means less dating, less mating, less marriage, less baby making. So there are a lot of basically headwinds coming at us you know today when it comes to having children and if we look at countries like japan we should be i think pretty concerned about where we may end up in 20 years from now
0: you've been monitoring uh, what's going on in family dynamics during the pandemic besides the actual marriage rates and uh, childbearing rates what else what kind of other dynamics are you seeing in family life that have come about because of this
2: pandemic well, I think there obviously lots of families have been stressed out by job loss, economic loss, lockdowns, you know, uh, the loss of a loved one during this pandemic. And so there are, you know, literally millions of families across this country that are in pain in one way or another right now. At the same time, I think we've seen reports in the media that divorce is soaring. Uh, that's the word that Uh, the Daily Mail used for one of its stories about divorce in America. And I've seen that meme over and over again in different media outlets, um, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. But the evidence right now on that score is no, it's not actually. Divorces has fallen um, this year, partly just because people couldn't get divorces during the lockdown. But even when you kind of look at the more recent trends in the states where we have evidence, divorce is, is down in 2020. And survey suggests that for many couples, you know, all the stress and strain of of this year has made them appreciate more how much they depend upon their spouse um, and has, if anything, kind of deepened their commitment to uh, their spouse and to their marriage. So I would say kind of coming out of this thing, the good news is that, you know, many families, many couples have a deeper sense of their commitment to one another and will be more stable. The bad news, as I said before, I think, is that all of the time will make people who are not currently married less likely to tie the knot. So there's going to be kind of this divide between those who are married, I think more stably so, and those who are not, you know, <clears throat> not married.
0: Talk, turning a little bit to kids and uh, the formation of social capital and education, uh, many kids are in school and doing well, and a lot of kids are not in school and falling behind. What's going on in the education area right now that you're seeing that uh, is of note?
2: Well, Family Studies, the online journal magazine that we produce, Family Studies, published an article yesterday on this score and just basically underlined the ways in which, particularly for kids who are in private school, we've seen, you know, many kids in Catholic schools and Christian schools and secular private schools, their schools have kind of risen to the bar, you know, that COVID has put before all of us. And, Passed over that bar, and they figured out ways to um, keep their schools open and keep their schools safe for, for our kids. Unfortunately, many of the biggest school districts in America have not done the same. And there are obviously lots of reasons why that's the case, but the, the sad reality is, is that many kids in private school have had access to in person education this fall, and that's not true for many kids in public school. And this sort of divide in private and public education has Uh, impacted working-class, poor, black, and Hispanic kids much more heavily than it has white, Asian, and more affluent kids.
0: There's a data point out there that men have gained 1.2 million jobs since the start of the pandemic, and women have lost 1.6 million jobs. What do you see are the long-term effects of that dynamic, and do you see it continuing?
2: I think the short-term impact of this particular trend will be that People who are married will be more likely to stay together. Um, there'll be a, a sort of a greater kind of appreciation on the part of spouses that this sort of economic, you know, fallout that we've been seeing and you've just been talking about uh, makes them more likely to appreciate the financial stability that marriage offers to them.
0: Do you think that the pandemic and the dynamics, you've mentioned some silver linings in terms of people being more cognizant of the dependence they have on other people. Do you think that that's going to translate into policies and cultural attitudes that are more uh, favorable towards supporting education generally, uh, marriage, different policies? Are we learning some lessons? Do you see see evidence of that, that attitudes about things about caregiving, the importance of education, these things are going to develop into perhaps long-term changes in policy and cultural outcomes?
2: I think we are going to see in the short term a child allowance passed, and I'm I'm happy about that. I don't think we're going to see a move towards greater school choice in public policy circles, at least at the federal level, there may be some states that are more likely to explore this option in the wake of the pandemic. But you know, I think because the Democratic Party is not supportive of school choice, and the Democratic Party is likely to dominate, you know, the federal landscape in the next four years, in many states as well, I don't think we're going to see a big push for school choice across uh, the U.S but there may be some you know particularly republican states or some purple states where the public schools failure to really deliver a quality education during the pandemic makes legislators more open to some kind of school choice measure
0: going back to that recent study about the role of religious schools and uh, child outcomes and child well-being what is it about religious schools that are making a difference in children's lives even if we don't if even if we stipulate that public schools don't cause achievement gaps why are religious schools uh, able to close them?
2: Well, what we saw is that in some ways private schools did better when it when it comes to Catholic and Protestant schools do better when it comes to kind of increasing the odds that their graduates will go on to to marry successfully and I think what these schools offer is both about kind of or they offer both sort of peers and principals to their students that are that are helpful. And so when it comes to peers, what we see is that kids who are attending Catholic and especially Protestant or Christian schools are much more likely to have peers who are not involved in drugs, who are not sexually active, and who are church going. And I think that's a lot of you know it's a lot to do with why they tend to be doing better in the family domain later on in life. We also see too. In Catholic and, and Christian schools, that there's more talk about, there's more attention given to marriage and family life. These are, these things are depicted in a more positive way. And so it kind of gives students a vision for the future, which can also kind of help guide them in the right direction. So uh, our report shows in general that kids who attend private schools are more likely to get married, to stay married, and to avoid a non-marital birth. The one I think thing that concern me about in the report is just that Catholic schools are not doing as well in these outcomes, typically, as our Protestant schools. And so I think, you know, our Catholic school principals um, and, uh, you know, leaders uh, and uh, religious education teachers need to be oftentimes, I think, more intentional about highlighting sort of the positive story about marriage and family life, uh, you know, that... That benefits our uh, our children in those schools.
0: Do you think the difference between Protestant and Catholic schools and the outcomes in those studies have anything to do with the fact that most Protestant schools are confessional that you generally uh, they serve people of a particular creed, whereas Catholic schools often serve people of all creeds and socioeconomic backgrounds? Do you think that accounts for some of the disparities and outcomes between Catholics and private sc- and Protestant schools?
2: Yeah, I think I mean Catholic schools tend to be more, uh, yeah, more mixed. They have many more non-Catholics than I think is true for many Christian schools. And so I think a lot of principals and a lot of teachers feel reluctant to, you know, really strongly articulate a Catholic perspective in the classroom. And that's uh, that's unfortunate because, among other things, it, it limits their ability to talk about the family issues that we were just touching on in our interview.
0: Indeed, that's a really important point. Uh, Dr. Wilcox, uh, we're grateful that you came on the show today, definitely one of the nation's premier public intellectuals on questions of marriage and family life. We very much appreciate your good work. Where can people go to find more about uh, some of this research and your work in particular?
2: So familystudies.org is our primary website. There's lots of studies and Um, articles around marriage, parenthood, dating, cohabitation, sex, fidelity, all those kinds of important topics. And then I'm also on Twitter at WilcoxNMP and regularly commenting on family issues for that uh, Twitter audience.
0: Outstanding. Dr. Brad Wilcox, thanks for being on the Bridge Builder program today.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me today, Jason. I appreciate it.
0: And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in today's mailbag?
1: Yeah, so today's question is actually one that we've received from a lot of people. They've called their office, they're emailing, they even asked during events. Because Election Day is just around the corner, a lot of Catholics are really trying to inform their vote, not just on the presidential election, but also locally and especially, they want to know about judges. They want to know, how can I find out more information to vote for my judge? What qualities should I be looking for in a judge?
0: Well, it's interesting because the federal government and the state government have taken two different approaches to how they appoint and retain judges. So in the federal level, Um, There's lifetime appointments to be a federal judge. The the goal there is to insulate them uh, from pressure and uh, political accountability. So as long as they're on good behavior, as the Constitution says, uh, they have life tenure, uh, which allows them to make more impartial decisions. The states, in many cases, including Minnesota, chose a different tack. To make uh, the decisions of judges uh, accountable and the acts of judges accountable to the electorate. So in Minnesota, we elect judges after they are first appointed, but then they have to stand for election um, soon after their appointment. I think it's a maximum of two, they can go think but max two years. Don't quote me on that before they have to be to stand for office. Then they serve generally six year terms. Uh, so it's important to get a sense of who these candidates are, and oftentimes that's difficult. So where do you go to find it? And the, the key thing is uh, y- using the Google. <laughs> Search engines are often the best uh, way to find out about a judge, their background. Of course, you're going to find the boilerplate information on their candidate websites, and that's the first place to go. But at the uh, for appellate judges, you can understand a lot about them based on their decisions and which decisions they join. So the state Minnesota state court website has a good selection of opinions that you can go to research them. You can also use Google, uh, for example, to find out how they ruled on high profile cases when their name would come up in the media so that that's an important way at the appellate level at the district court level um, those judges at the lowest level of our court system those are often folks who are very tied to their communities have long reputations in the community as a practitioner and so and they operate at a county level so what you want to do is look into your county newspapers and your local newspapers and media sources and get to know them and they're all, they'll often do events in the community. So it's really uh, not waiting till election day to find out who these folks are, but getting to know the people who are making important decisions at the county level and then sort of being attentive to what's going on uh, in the courts at the state level. So when you see a controversial issue being ruled upon uh, at the state level among our appellate judges or our Supreme Court justices, you want to kind of make a mental note of that and know the who's who of who our state courts, uh, the folks are in our state court system and our judges there. It's not easy. Let's be real uh, clear about that. And oftentimes there aren't great sources of information. It does take a little bit of work uh, to find out who these candidates are and and what they stand for.
1: Great. Thanks, Jason. And there is still time to do that research. And before we go, how else might people start to build the bridge between faith and public life, especially in these final days before Election Day.
0: Well, with just days left until Election Day, for those of you who will be voting in person or maybe haven't uh, sent off your absentee ballot yet, you will want to take time to check out our resources on our election page, mncatholic.org. There you'll find resources such as USCCB's Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, including a two-page summary of that document so you don't have to necessarily read the whole thing. We also encourage you to join us in our election novita, which is posted on the website and is now underway. It is important to take time to prayerfully discern who you are voting for and the choices you make at the ballot box. Remember that even if you don't aren't inclined to vote in the presidential election, there are still important races down ballot, whether those are federal or state. And even if you've already sent off your absentee ballot, continue to pray for all those who are running for office, that they would be a voice for life, dignity, and the common good. You can find links at our website, mncatholic.org election, to the Secretary of State's website to learn where your polling place is located and who is on your ballot. Check out your ballot ahead of time, and then you can do the research about who the candidates are and what they stand for. That's all the time we have for today, but listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.